Aloha, fellow Harrisonites, and welcome to the Harrison Podcast. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. After a couple of weeks of holiday episodes, we're finally back to our narrative. And in case the Columbia National Anthem didn't clue you in, John Quincy Adams did ultimately offer Harrison the post of U.S. Minister to Columbia. However, before we get to that point, for those of you unfamiliar with South American history, I wanted to give you a bit of context about the nation that Harrison would be traveling to before we get into his diplomatic mission. Just a quick note before I begin. Naturally, I can't begin to tell the entire story of the South American Wars for Independence in a few minutes and wouldn't dare to try. This will be a very high-level summary hitting on the key points of what you need to know in order to try to understand this part of Harrison's life. If you're interested in learning more, Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast is currently in the midst of a series of episodes on the subject. I'll include a link on the show notes page for this episode on the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y, dot com. But it can also be found on iTunes by searching for Revolutions. While the United States declared independence in 1776, when James Madison assumed the presidency in 1809, Central and a large portion of South America were still under Spanish control. However, the citizens of the New World were straining under the Spanish yoke. As noted by Maria Arana, quote, The case of the Spanish-American colonies had no precedent in modern history. A vital colonial economy was being forced, at times by violent means, to kowtow to an underdeveloped mother country. Even as England burst into the Industrial Age, Spain made no attempt to develop factories. It ignored the road to modernization and stuck stubbornly to its primitive agricultural roots. Absolute rule had always been the hallmark of Spanish colonialism, and in a bizarre act of self-immolation, Spain enforced strict regulations on its colony's productivity and initiative. Added to this was Spain's turbulent course through the Napoleonic Wars. As described by Charles Esdelet in describing Spain in the period from 1796 to 1807, quote, For the whole of this time, Madrid had been in alliance with Paris, and by the same token, usually at war with Britain. From this, however, she had gained nothing. Not only had her diplomatic interests been repeatedly flouted, but her entire position as a world power had been thrown into jeopardy. The loss of much of her fleet at Trafalgar left her with few means of physically remaining in touch with her far-flung dominions, let alone keeping them under her control. Economic downturns, natural disasters, and outbreaks of yellow fever and malaria added to Spain's distress. Then, the unthinkable happened. Napoleon decided to overthrow the Spanish monarchy in 1808 and put his brother, Joseph Bonaparte, in charge of Spain. This quickly met with resistance, and the aftermath of the Peninsular War would result in Ferdinand VII being restored to the throne in 1813. As you can imagine, this brief synopsis does not come close to doing justice to the topic, and I would recommend Estelle's book entitled Napoleon's Wars and in International History for a better understanding of the Napoleonic Wars. Suffice it to say, Spain was in a very weakened state in the 18-teens and various folks in the New World decided to use the opportunity to seek a better position for themselves, their people, and their interests. A revolution was declared in Buenos Aires in 1810, while in the same year, Miguel Hidalgo, a parish priest in the town of Dolores in central Mexico, launched a revolution in that Spanish colony. Though short-lived, the first Venezuelan Republic was proclaimed in 1811. Out of the fires of the latter revolution, 
would step onto the stage of history a man who would come to be known as the George Washington of South America, a man who would play a key role in Harrison's diplomatic career, the liberator, Simon Bolivar. Bolivar had been born into a prominent family that had been in the New World for two centuries. After a period abroad, which included a trip to the United States, Bolivar returned to Caracas in June 1807 and became involved with the independence movement there, which led to the formation of the First Venezuelan Republic. Bolivar would go into a brief exile in Jamaica when royalist forces gained the upper hand, but would continue to advocate for independence from afar until his return to the mainland in late 1816. He would spend the next few years continuously on the march, going as far as Junín and Ayacucho in modern-day Peru to fight the royalist forces, and ending Spanish control in what is now modern-day Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia. What would ultimately prove to be more problematic for Bolivar, however, was in keeping the peace. We'll come back to that in a moment. When we last left Harrison, he had gone from begging for an appointment to any office someone would give him, to starting to set his sights a little higher first to the vice presidency, and then possibly on to the main office. This was something Secretary of State Henry Clay couldn't allow, as he had already measured out where his furniture was going to go in the White House, and the heck if he was going to allow this upstart general get in the way of his presidential plans. There was just that small matter of convincing the current president, John Quincy Adams, to send Harrison away. Far, far away. On May 29, 1828, William Henry Harrison was appointed as U.S. Minister to Columbia with an annual salary of $9,000, which would be $225,000 in 2015 dollars, along with a $9,000 allowance. Naturally, cash-strapped Harrison jumped at the opportunity to take a position that could potentially put him in the center of U.S. foreign policy should 1828 go favorably for Adams. President Adams, in his prior role as Secretary of State, had begun outreach efforts to Latin American nations, with the mission being continued and expanded under Clay's tenure at State. However, these efforts were not looked upon favorably by partisans in Washington. Adams's presidency had begun with a treaty he had negotiated with Columbia to facilitate the suppression of the slave trade at the end of the Monroe administration being unanimously rejected by the Senate. Adams and Clay had attempted to push forward the idea of institutionalized, regular cooperation among all of the independent nations of the Western Hemisphere, which had been espoused by Bolivar and advocated in Washington by the official representatives from Colombia and Mexico. But many in American political circles felt that it violated George Washington's warning in his farewell address to avoid foreign entanglements. The administration's ideas were forward-thinking, but the election would allow the populace to weigh in on whether they felt that it was in the best interest of the United States. Harrison took the summer to put his affairs in order in North Bend, as well as to assemble a small team to accompany him. His son, Carter Bassett Harrison, would act as his attaché, while he chose Colonel John Taylor to act as his secretary. Taylor had previously served on Joel R. Poinsett's staff during his diplomatic mission to Mexico and was described by Harrison biographer Freeman Cleves as an, quote, unfortunate choice. But Cleves does not explain why, beyond noting how tumultuous Poinsett's mission had been, and notes that the Colombian foreign minister referred to him as, quote, a petty intriguer. Meanwhile, Major Renslosser van Renslosser, the son of Harrison's old army colleague, Solomon Van Renslosser, was set to complete the staff and would join Harrison in Bogota later. Clay, in his instructions to Harrison, warned him of, quote, 
the distracted condition of that republic, and of, quote, the uncertainty whether a constitutional government or a military despotism is existing there. By this point, Bolivar's dream had become a nightmare. Bolivar had united most of the northern portions of South America, including modern-day Colombia, Venezuela, and Ecuador, into the Republic of Greater Colombia, in a system where Bolivar was president, but in which day-to-day -day governance was carried out by a vice president for the full republic and a vice president in each of the three main administrative districts. Nothing could go wrong with that, right? It's not like they'd all start vying for power, right? Especially with Bolivar spending most of his time away from the capital, continuing to fight in other parts of South America, and not being present to provide a guiding hand. One in particular, Francisco de Paula Santander, began to plot against Bolivar himself, and in mid-1827, went so far as to remove the dictatorial powers that Bolivar had been granted, to which Bolivar responded by heading back to Bogota to take a firmer grasp on the reins of government. However, the problems he faced were many. Bolivar saw the problem as being, quote, Santander and a diabolical Congress. He felt that the government in place, quote, had undermined the army, frittered away the money, and imposed a political system that worked only in Bogota. He couldn't conceive of the fact that he could be part of the problem. As noted by Bolivar biographer Maria Rana, quote, For five years running, Colombia essentially had underwritten the liberation of six countries. Taxes had brought the government five or six million dollars a year, but the army and navy were spending double that, 13 or 14 million dollars, and much of it on foreign ground. The ever-expanding wars of independence had become a vast maw that needed to be fed. In his quest for liberation, Bolivar had enslaved his people to public debt and taken extra-legal powers onto himself. Meanwhile, the country was in an economic downturn. Peru had turned from ally to enemy, taking control of a port in Ecuador by force, and the government was crippled by corruption and infighting. Clay warned Harrison that the conditions on the ground, quote, render the mission one of great delicacy and impart to it a high degree of importance. He was cautioned to, quote, abstain from identifying yourself with either of the contending parties vying for power. Our policy has been long and firmly fixed to avoid all interference in the internal concerns of any country. The president wishes no deviation from it. It is here, though, that Clay throws in a caveat as he continues, quote, It is not, however, inconsistent with it for you to avail yourself of proper occasions to express his, the President's, sincere regret on account of the dissensions which unhappily prevail in Colombia, and his ardent hope that they may terminate in the establishment of a constitutional government so as to secure her liberty and advance her happiness and prosperity nor that you should, on proper application, communicate freely and frankly the nature of our institutions and their practical operation. Remember that condition for Harrison throwing in his two cents, dear listener, as it will come back to bite Harrison. After continuing on with some more technical details to bring Harrison up to speed on the current state of relations and asking for any information that Harrison can gather on conditions on the ground, Clay urges Harrison to express to the Colombian government the desire of Adams that there should be a cessation of conflict between their nation and that of Peru, informing Harrison that Peru had already requested that the U.S. act as a mediator, but that the administration hadn't responded to the request yet, 
and wasn't sure if Columbia knew of the request. With that, Harrison was set forth on his first diplomatic mission. Harrison and his party departed from New York City aboard the sloop Erie in mid-November 1828 bound for Columbia. Though I haven't found conclusive evidence yet, it is likely that Harrison was aware that Adams had lost his re-election bid, as Van Buren, also in New York, was writing a letter of congratulations to Jackson on the 14th. Before you start wondering about how desperate Harrison was for a few bucks, it was not a given at that point in American history that all of the American diplomatic representatives would be replaced immediately by a new administration, if at all. If Harrison did know of Jackson's victory when his ship departed, it could have been that he thought he may have a couple of years before Jackson got around to making any changes, or that their camaraderie as military leaders in the War of 1812 may win Jackson over to retain him in the position. It could also have been that everything was already paid for, and Harrison figured he might as well go. All of this is speculation on my part, so take it with as many grains of salt as you deem necessary. What we do know is that Harrison arrived in Maricabo in modern-day Venezuela on December 21st and remained there for a week. He was immediately beset both with requests to appeal to the Colombian government against successive levies which had been imposed upon the cargoes of U.S. shipping interests and by the extreme poverty of the nation. Harrison reported to Clay that, quote, the affairs of this country are not only in a most unsettled state, but the prospect for the future is still more gloomy and ominous. I found it extremely difficult to obtain a knowledge of facts. I run no risk when I say that the government appears to be a complete military despotism. Agriculture and commerce appear to be most wretched. After engaging in Christmas celebrations, which listeners to this program know now involved, quote, dancing, gambling, and drunkenness at that time, Harrison and his party made the journey by land 750 miles to Bogota. It took them over a month, but they arrived at the capital city on February 5, 1829, where Harrison was received by Colombian Minister of State and Secretary of Foreign Affairs, Estanislao Vigada. James Hall, in his biography of Harrison, notes that Harrison, quote, was received with the most flattering demonstrations of respect, but his liberal opinions, his stern Republican integrity, and the plain simplicity of his dress and manners contrasted too sharply with the arbitrary opinions and ostentatious behavior of the public officers to allow him to be long a favorite with those who had usurped the power of that government. Vergara reported back to Bolivar, who had traveled to Colombia's border with Peru to take control of operations there, and was thus absent from the capital upon Harrison's arrival. His impressions of Harrison as, quote, a man who inspires confidence and seems very mild, and that he, quote, seems to be a simple and good man, more a countryman than a diplomat, not military. Harrison established his diplomatic mission in, quote, a sizable mansion, the Garden of James, and spent much time in cultivating rows of vegetables new to that country, the seed imported from North Bend. His garden flourished abundantly in a moist soil at some 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The produce, freely dispensed, was in great demand at legation dinners. He shared with Anna Harrison in a letter home that his garden consisted of, quote, beans, peas, cabbages, cauliflowers, celery, and artichokes in abundance, and we shall soon have beets. Harrison biographer Green notes that he felt that Harrison may have turned to his garden for, quote, quietness and solace, to escape the, quote, atmosphere of intrigue and of desperate political plotting that seemed to prevail in Bogota. 
Harrison began to socialize amongst folks of other nationalities sent to Bogota either for diplomatic or for business reasons, and became close with the British Consul General, the Mexican Minister of Columbia, and a Danish agent of a British banking house, all of whom had ties to anti-Bolivar factions. Meanwhile, the situation in Colombia had deteriorated further. The Constitutional Convention that Bolivar had called in 1828 had deadlocked and produced nothing. Two assassination attempts on Bolivar's life had been thwarted by his mistress, and Henry Clay, after warning Harrison so adamantly not to involve himself in Colombian politics, had ridden to Bolivar in late October 1828 to state that, quote, I cannot allow myself to believe that your excellency will abandon the bright and glorious path which lies plainly before you for the bloody road passing over the liberties of the human race on which the vulgar crowd of tyrants and military despots have so often trodden i will not doubt that your excellence will in due time render a satisfactory explanation to columbia and to the world of the parts of your public conduct which have excited any distrust still Harrison managed to comport himself with honor and conviviality. On the 4th of July, he hosted a celebration at the Garden of James, which, as described by Renslosser van Renslosser, who had arrived in Bogota by that point, was attended by 50 ladies and 100 gentlemen, quote, representatives of all nations. The corps diplomatique and government officers were all in court costume. The dancing commenced before 4 o'clock. At five o'clock, dinner was announced, and the tables were filled three successive times, while the utmost hilarity and good feeling pervaded throughout the whole entertainment. Many excellent toasts were given, and when the guests had all been feasted to sufficiency, and the eating and drinking over, we adjourned to the drawing room. The large parlor, which was appropriately and tastefully decorated with the Stars and Stripes, the Declaration of Independence, Bust of Washington, etc., soon resounded to the inspiriting music accompanied by the shuffling of the light fantastic toe, which was kept up with great animation till midnight, when the guests retired to their respective homes, delighted with Yankee hospitality and the urbanity of the host. The spirit of lightheartedness and celebration was not soon to last, though, as news of new developments arrived from the United States. Andrew Jackson had taken up the presidency on March 4th and was in the mood to clear house. One of his supporters, Representative Thomas Patrick Moore of Kentucky called in some favors, and Jackson appointed him as the new U.S. Minister to Columbia on March 11. However, neither Jackson, his new Secretary of State Martin Van Buren, nor Moore himself were in any hurry for the changeover to take place. Jackson wrote to Van Buren on May 23 that, quote, nothing had occurred to the necessity of his, Harrison's, early departure, and Harrison's letter of recall wasn't issued until June 2nd which would be hand-delivered by Moore. In the meantime, Harrison continued to report from Bogota. In February, he reported on, quote, an enormous tax that was being levied on the people, as well as freedom of the press being limited, the right to bear arms being curtailed, and a ban on patriotic societies that may be unfavorable to Bolivar's dictatorial rule. In May, he was able to report a success in convincing the Council of Ministers to postpone a planned 5% levy on U.S. imports. That would, unfortunately, prove to be one of Harrison's few successes as the Colombian political intrigue continued to ramp up. Bolivar started floating around a plan with British and French diplomats for Bolivar to assume either a crown or a dictatorship for life and, upon his death, 
Britain and France would choose either an individual or dynasty to succeed him and would guarantee their rule. Nothing would ultimately come of this plan as both nations rejected it. But in July, one of Bolivar's generals, while delivering remarks at a public event, proposed that Bolivar be given the monarchy, the first time the plan had been advocated publicly. Meanwhile, Harrison would be criticized for saying in a public toast that the governmental system of the United States, quote, provided a sum of human happiness nowhere else to be found, which was taken by some as an insinuation that Colombians were incapable of sustaining a free government like that of the United States. The monarchists in Colombia began to point to Jackson's use of the spoil system to rid the government of political rivals as justification for Bolivar taking more power and doing the same in their nation. And Harrison had to argue that Jackson was not, nor had any intention of making himself king, while in private questioning Jackson's actions and asking, quote, Is this the pure government of the United States? The associations of Harrison's legation staff, including his own son, Carter Bassett Harrison, with a woman known to be anti-Bolivar, was questioned. And Harrison's interactions in his official capacity with Americans who had become too involved with anti-Bolivar factions created awkward moments with government officials. In general, the situation was very tense when Thomas Moore arrived in mid-September to relieve Harrison of his post. One has to imagine, at this point, that Harrison was more than ready to leave the country. Arrangements had been made for Harrison and his party to board the USS Natchez in November in Carthagena, or at least that was Harrison's understanding. Moore was presented to and received by the Colombian government as the official American representative on September 25th, marking the official passing of the baton and ending Harrison's official diplomatic career. The story, however, was far from over, as Harrison, now a private citizen, sat down in Bogota on September 27th, to conclude a letter to Simon Bolivar that he had been working on for the past week. We'll pick up with that letter next time, in an episode that I'd like to call The Case of Harrison v. Despotism. Yeah, that should give you some indication of how this letter goes. In the meantime, just a reminder that sources used for this episode, as well as supplemental materials, can be found at the blog at whhpodcast.blueberry, blueberry without the e's, dot com. If you have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns, I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me by email at harrisonpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash harrisonpodcast, again, all one word, or you can leave me a review on iTunes. Past episodes can be found on the blog or on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, take care, friends.